Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's program, we find out why Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital is tipping such a big fall in house prices going forward. Dan Annan, the CEO of Cosmos Asset Management, that has a whole lot of cryptocurrency ETFs listed on the Australian stock market. He's on the show and I ask him, how scared is he about cryptocurrency's price? Where is it going to go? He's, as you might be um, not surprised, he's positive on it going up in the future. But how long will that future take to, to arrive? And then buyer's agent Lloyd Edge from Oz Property Professionals looks at the property market right now as a buyer's agent. What are buyers thinking about um, the market right now? But also he explains how he's accumulated 18 properties over not a, a great period of time. That's the show for tonight. Let's kick off now with Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital. Well, joining me now is Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital. Chris, thanks for coming to the program. Thank you, mate. Now, you know, uh, I know you like to be on the on the cutting edge of doomsday merchant predictions, but you know, you're you're figuring from your your team, your your pointy-headed team of, of smart people think that house prices could fall by 30%. That was something you said in my program at least probably two months ago. And now more people are kind of accepting that you could be right. Um, how certain are you about the 30% fall? Could it be 20%? Yeah, so 30% is actually not our forecast. Our forecast is <clears throat> 15 to 25%. Uh, we published that forecast in the AFR in October last year. And we were very explicit. We said we thought the RBA could start raising rates uh, in mid-22. As you know, <clears throat> they first hiked in May. And we said, Peter, that after the first 100 basis points of hikes, we thought house prices would thereafter adjust down 15 to 25%. The RBA's housing model, which uh, <clears throat> we've replicated and we use internally, that does point to larger price falls. If the RBA meets the market expectation for hikes, which is an RBA cash rate of 4% or more. And uh, we don't think the RBA will get there. We think the RBA will probably conk out in terms of hikes, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent. The risk is the RBA goes heavy and hard early. So the market thinks they'll hike by 50 bips next Tuesday. And they may find that they front end load too many hikes <clears throat> and the impact on the economy is quite um, materially negative. And we're seeing this in the data. So, uh, and also just one point of precision, um, in October last year, we said we thought house prices would continue to increase by at least another 5%. They ended up uh, rising 5.4%. Big miss, Chris. There's a big miss. Yeah, thanks, mate. But we are, we are, one thing that has, I guess, surprised me a little is notwithstanding, I mean, we were very bullish, as you remember, on housing um, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Um, but we were definitely the first sort of mainstream um, analyst to turn very bearish late last year. But we have seen house prices react very quickly. So uh, the national index has fallen 
<clears throat> for two months in a row over May and June. Um, house prices in June uh, in Sydney fell by 1.6% in that month alone. And in Melbourne, they fell by 1.1%. Uh, that may not sound like much, but Sydney and Melbourne house prices are right now falling at a double digit annual pace. Um, and we're also seeing house prices in Brisbane start to roll over. And we're seeing prices in Perth <clears throat> begin to flatline. So I am very confident that house prices will fall 15 to 25% if and only if the RBA hikes by at least 100 basis points. It looks like the RBA will definitely do that. Um, so, you know, barring some sort of, uh, you know, ultra aggressive intervention by governments to bail out the housing market, um, we're going to have a big drawdown. But we have seen significant drawdowns in 2008 between 2010 and 2012. And then national prices actually fell 10 to 11% <clears throat> between 2017 and 19, when AMP, APRA basically um, made it much tougher for banks to lend against homes. And you might remember in 2015, 16, 17, banks really aggressively jacked up uh, the uh, borrowing rates on loans uh, to property investors. So there was a huge increase in investment interest rates. And that's what precipitated what was a record loss for the housing market of 10 to 11% between 17 and 19. And I think uh, a 15 percentage pull, uh, sorry, a 15 percentage pull, uh, point uh, fall in prices is all but inevitable. Uh, when we said this in October last year, nobody was forecasting it. Um, I think it's important that most of the big banks have embraced this perspective and are now calling similar falls. Um, yeah. The 30 to 40% fall that we talked about recently, mate, was really predicated on the RBA lifting the cash rate to above 4%, and we don't think they're going to do that. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, your inflation forecasting, Chris, now the Reserve Bank thinks it could get to as high as 7%. Now, I know you would be trying to work out the, the inflation forecasting model. What have you guys come up with? Um, mate, I'm probably, I suspect your uh, you know, glass half full on this and, and uh, uh, you know, in, in, in captured by a bit of hopium on the, in, in the inflation, uh, uh, yeah, on the inflation front. Surprising you'd say that about me, Chris, but go on. Well, in our conversations, you tend to be more glass half full. But um, yep. what I would say is that I think that there is some um, uh, early evidence that inflation is indeed starting to roll over in core global markets. So we've actually seen some weaker inflation prints in Europe, and I think this is very important. And then in the US, we've had uh, three or four core inflation prints using the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation measure. Uh, it's called the core PCE measure. No need to really understand that point. It's just a, a particular inflation index. But that index uh, printed overnight, um, uh, and, and the result was weaker than the market thought. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of confirms that US inflation um, core or underlying inflation has come down from using this particular index, uh, a five to 6% level uh, down to a three to 4% level and it's starting to roll over. We're also seeing signs <coughs> in the US that wages growth is starting to attenuate. And obviously there have been a huge conga line of supply side shocks that have pushed up inflation. Um, but as the governor of the RBA said, 
uh, unless oil prices increase by another 66%, uh, if they just simply stay at the same level, that is the price of oil, um, then there will be no zero inflation uh, in, in, in the price of that particular commodity. So I think that there are good reasons to think that inflation rates globally and eventually in Australia, because it does feel like we're a little bit behind the US uh, in terms of our own inflation pulse, those inflation rates will start rolling over um, as producers uh, supply more of the goods and services uh, that they were not able to supply during the COVID lockdowns. Yep. Uh, and then, um, you know, obviously we have the Russian uh, and Ukrainian conflict uh, and then the Chinese lockdowns to contend with. So there have been a sequence of supply side shocks that have artificially increased inflation rates, um, but they have been amplified by very strong demand. So global growth has been strong. Uh, unemployment rates globally have been very, very low, including uh, here in Australia, and that has fueled wages growth. And we have had some nascent wage price spirals emerging globally. Um, and uh, that, that's been a cause for some concern. But the world has a lot of debt and uh, these interest rate hikes are likely to be potent. We're seeing in Australia, the housing market has reacted almost immediately. And I think the RBA um, is uh, going to take very significant note on this. Now, I think it's important. Um, one, one little aside, Peter, the governor of the RBA, just before he uh, started hiking, uh, started talking about the need to get back to neutral and normalise the RBA's overnight cash rate, which is the, the cash rate they set and then our bank deposit rates and home loan rates price off that. Uh, and he, he was frequently referring to getting that cash rate to 2.5%, which he thought would be normal. Um, but a 2.5% cash rate would really have quite deleterious consequences for things like the housing market, for consumer confidence, for construction uh, and associated sort of employment sectors. And he had also acknowledged that the RBA had had an, a horrible forecasting track record mm. uh, and had completely got the uh, pre and post pandemic periods totally wrong. Um, and, and so we sort of questioned, if you're telling us you can't forecast your next footstep, how do you know you're gonna to get to a 2.5% cash rate? Cause that's a long, yep. long way away from a 0.1% cash rate. And I think it's encouraging mate that in his last speech, he really was at pains to say, we are not targeting a specific endpoint or a specific cash rate. He seems to walk, seems to have walked back a bit from the two and a half percent. And then he stressed, mate, that they're going to watch like a hawk household spending. Uh, and I think that's key because consumer confidence is very weak right now. It's going to weaken further. Um, and I think that this uh, record correction in the value of households' most important asset is inevitably going to bleed into sentiment, spending, and ultimately yeah. economic growth. Yeah. Uh, and it's something the RBA needs to pay attention to. Yeah, and, and also, Chris, um, uh, there's two things I, I like to say about, about Dr Lowe. One is that <clears throat> we all thought he was being um, ridiculous, saying that interest rates wouldn't move to 2024. But when he was saying it, the economy needed to hear it. It was right, the depth of the, of the coronavirus crash so it was a smart thing to say, even though people like you and I never, ever thought he would hold it to it. Now he's saying stuff like you were saying, he may well be jawboning big time so he doesn't have to actually raise. And we are seeing it, aren't we? We're seeing consumers, business confidence starting to fall. So maybe he, in the, in the fullness of time, some of them might say he made some what seemed to be dumb comments, but they worked 
in terms of not making interest rates go too high. And one other thing, I'm sure he must be looking at these petrol prices uh, and saying to himself, well, these are like interest rate rises. I know I filled my car up the other day. It used to be a 120 fill. That was 183. And that, that's 63 bucks extra a week. And that, that's like an interest rate rise, isn't it? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you made a very nuanced and interesting point because what you're really saying is that he's using this so-called jawboning technique uh, to verbally deliver some come-to-Jesus moments for the economy. Um, now, back in the pandemic, he needed to deliver a message of um, assurance, you know, safety, security, stability. Now he needs to deliver a little bit of shock value to say, hey, you can't just unilaterally increase wages by 5% to track a one-off increase in inflation. And you need to be insured. He, he needs to really kind of snuff out any prospect of a burgeoning wage price spiral. Um, and, and I think, I mean, there's a lot of merit to what you say, mate. There is a lot of merit. But having said that, the counter-argument uh, perhaps is that he did encourage, you know, hundreds of thousands of Australians to take out a lot of debt on the presumption that they wouldn't see rate hikes yeah. for a long, long time. Even as recently as late last year, he more or less uh, roundly dismissed the the possibility of hikes in 2022. And now he's suddenly telling us, you know, he needs to get to 2.5% as quickly as he can. I mean, I, I think the management um, of the communications and the management of policy um, uh, was suboptimal and could have been improved. But the one thing I've said about the RBA, these guys are very smart, they're very hardworking, they're very passionate about their jobs. But like, like all of us, they're not infallible. Um, there is a review um, that's about to start um, of the RBA and its policy choices uh, to try and determine whether they could have done a better job. And I'm sure they'll find that there's, there's opportunities for reform. At a time when cryptocurrencies are in a bit of a crisis with the stock market sell-off not really helping the, um, the cryptocurrency world, we've got Dan Annan, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Cosmos Asset Management, and they've recently listed uh, a number of ETFs linked to cryptocurrency. We'll see how that's going and what he's expecting will happen in the future. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So it's a pleasure. Ah, so Dan, I guess you would have preferred this not to happen when you've just kicked off some new ETFs. <laughs> Look, uh, precisely, right? I mean, you know, no one, um, you can't, one of the things as, as issue is you can't time the markets, right? Um, our goal at Cosmos Asset Management was to deliver access to the cryptocurrency assets class, asset class in the on a regulated financial platform. And that's what the exchange traded ETF brings to the table for financial professionals that wanna be able to hold the asset within portfolios. Um, and the key for us is that you know, we've got the products out the door. Uh, and the next step is really getting investors to really understand the fundamentals of the asset class. So no, you know, like, I mean, ideally you, you, wanna, you wanna launch product when markets are calm, but you know we've launched uh, in in I would say global volatility uh, market, including you know fears of inflation, recession, uh, and a, and a crypto winter. So um, you know timing is not great, but uh, we're steadfast and we'll continue to educate the market. Mm. Um, I, I would presume that inexperienced investors <clears throat> may well have um, uh, left the market 
while maybe experienced ones see this as a buying opportunity? Well, precisely, right? I mean, I think I'm, I'm often asked when I'm when I'm talking to investors around the asset class, like, where is the bottom? Um, and my response is that, you know, where is the bottom is the wrong question. You know, what is your investment objective? One. Two, what is your view of the cryptocurrency asset class, especially the blue chips? Um, and will, will the, is the current position or the current valuation um, of the asset class Will that remain the same relative to the future? Uh, and our view is, you know, if you look at the fundamentals of Bitcoin and fundamentals of Ethereum, um, what we continue to see is continuous adoption, specifically with Bitcoin, continuing adoptions of individuals, you know, holding the asset class. You know, that's measured by new addresses that's being published, right? Um, and so. Those are the fundamentals of how you value the asset. And then what's really different to the current environment and to the previous volatility we've seen in crypto, uh, the difference between today and what we've seen in the past is we actually have quite a bit of institutional adoption and institutional investors looking at the asset class overall, not specific to just Bitcoin or Ethereum, but also the infrastructure around it. Uh, and we're seeing businesses either acquire uh, certain businesses that have been caught up in the crypto winter to bolster up their business because uh, they want to enter into the cryptocurrency mm. infrastructure. So, you know, while we're, we are in what I would call a, a crypto winter, what's really, really interesting to see is that you're seeing institutional investors like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, among others, uh, investing or looking at the asset class differently and looking at different businesses for which they can acquire to bring onto their platform. Has the, the business model and the expectations about the business model for you been negatively affected by the fact that some really well-known um, cryptocurrency platforms and exchanges uh, look to be in trouble or there's question marks about their solvency? Is that something that once again, is, is a headwind that you have to deal yeah. with? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a headwind that you know, I think if we look at the tech sector uh, back in the early 90s, it's a headwind that the tech sector also have to deal with, right? Um, certainly, there are businesses uh, that have put on leverage positions uh, in a time of zero interest rates, and that's going to move against them, right? And so you will see some businesses survive uh, you'll see some businesses fail. Um, and that's okay, right? And that's, what, that's why we have capital markets. I mean, the key, the key is that investors should really be thinking about the fundamentals of the asset class, looking at the blue chips of these asset class, specifically when we talk about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum. What are the fundamentals for Bitcoin? What does it stand for? What is it supposed to do? Ethereum, similar, similar, um, it's, Ethereum is really, really interesting from my perspective is that, you know, it's going to be the platform where a lot of traditional businesses bring on as a way to manage logistics uh, and Ether, which is the crypto coin or token that is used to, to transact within the Ethereum platform. Uh, that's, that's what's used. So investors that have a view that you have businesses, global national businesses that are adopting or looking at the Ethereum platform to manage logistics for the future 
should be thinking about Ether as a way to gain exposure to the future growth of, the, of that token. Um, and for Bitcoin, really, as I mentioned earlier on, it's about the adoption rate of individuals that are getting involved, as well as globally, some of the emerging countries that are starting to look at it as a way of holding as part of their uh, treasury. And look, while it's, it's early days, you know, would you have rather bought Bitcoin when it was at 60 or when it's at 20? Hmm. Right. Uh, and so you have to have a long term view of this asset class. I would prefer the 250 <laughs> rather than all those numbers. <laughs> yeah, precisely, right? So look, we're, we're so early. I mean, we, we think about where we are in the cycle of, of cryptocurrency and sort of where we go. We're so early in its infancy, right, that the opportunity is there. Um, I think investors need to get really comfortable around, you know, how to allocate the asset within a, within a portfolio construction. And in our view, you know, between two to three percent of an allocation of a 60-40 portfolio should do the trick, depending on, depending on each individual's risk profile. And you've got to think about that cost averaging into entering into positions um, and, and not sit on the sidelines. Because if you sit on the sidelines, Peter, you know, you'll be saying you know, the same thing or someone else will be saying the same thing in, in a couple of years. Like, oh, I should have gotten at 20 instead of waiting where it is, whatever that price point is in the future. Yeah. Um, Dan... Anyone who is already in your ETF or thinking about it would be asking the question, how safe is it? Now, clearly, if the, if the price falls, it's, it's risky. But all investments are like that. But yep. how can people be sure that the, the, um, the structure you've got behind this ETF is rock solid so I can make sure I can transact uh, sell, buy, uh, and, and make a profit if a profit's there to be made? Yeah, look, it's a great, great question. I think that's really there's two things to, to, to that question. Um, the first is our partnership with Purpose Investments. Our JV with Purpose Investments is what basically keeps us solid during this crypto winter, right? So Purpose Investments is a Canadian fund manager who launched the first Bitcoin and Ether ETFs in the world out of Canada. 14 billion fund manager, strong balance sheet, uh, and they are RJV in delivering these asset classes to investors. That's one. The second thing is if you look at the underlying market cap of both products, um, you know, well over, or both, both exposures are both well over hundred millions of dollars in fund. So, you know, investors that buy into CPET, which is the Cosmos Purpose Ethereum ETF, what they're doing is gaining exposure of the Toronto-based listed Ether ETF. Uh, and investors who buy uh, CBTC, what they're doing is getting exposure to the Toronto-based listed ETF. Hmm. And all we're doing is just giving them that exposure through the local listed um, ETF in Australia. Okay. Further to that, we have strong market makers, strong market makers that are there on screens to ensure fair pricing for investors to, to buy in and out. Uh, so the investor experience really is when Bitcoin goes up and if you own CBTC, you know, your, your exposure or your pricing goes up with it. And, and as a manager, the key is to ensure that we are actually doing our job in tracking the index. Okay. Um, last question, mate. Um, obviously, you be um, thinking about cryptocurrencies night and day at the moment. Um, 
What do you think is going to happen? What's going to play out over the next six months for, for cryptocurrency and why? Yeah, look, I think the key the key is that, you know, you're going to see um, the, the volatility that we're seeing now is going to persist uh, with, with central banks' movements of uh, rates. That's going to impact businesses that are leveraged in this in this space, right? Uh, so you've got a volatile asset class one, and you have positions on that are leveraged. That's going that's going to hurt some businesses. So I think what we will see here is sort of a clean out or a washout of some of the unstable businesses in the asset class, uh, and you'll see the cream uh, rise to the top. But when we look at the tokens themselves, I think when you look at the fundamentals of Ethereum and the applications of Ethereum and the Ether token within that um, blockchain technology, that's going to stay. That I mean, that's that's a blue chip uh, stock within the cryptocurrency token. And so is Bitcoin. So I think, you know, what we'll see in the future is, you know, some of these stable coins or uh, higher market cap blue chip tokens will sort of work their way through this difficult time period. Uh, and then investors that stick with it would be the winners uh, in the long term. One final one. The the old view was that maybe Bitcoin has a high correlation with gold, but it seems like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency really has a high correlation with tech stocks. Therefore, if you believe tech stocks will rebound later this year, you then would keep your fingers crossed that that correlation would, would uh, actually uh, bear fruit again. Look, yes to, yes, to some extent, I think, you know, what we saw with the higher correlation of crypto to tech stocks is you saw free cash flow or speculative cash flow chasing uh, high risk assets, high risk, high reward assets, and that's tech and that's crypto. Um, and we've seen sort of the correction correlate back on the way back down. Um, I think, yes, there's going to be some, there is some component of crypto to tech. It, it is a technology, it's a blockchain technology. So investors with that view for the blockchain technology uh, certainly should have, you know, um, do, I would say first do your homework to ensure that the exposure they're taking on uh, is the type of risk they want to take on for the long term. But you should see some sort of, the correlation of tech to crypto should persist. Dan, thanks for joining us. Good luck. Thank you. Dan Annan from Cosmos Asset Management. Well, joining me now is Lloyd Edge from Oz Property Professionals. And I want to see what he's seeing out there in the market as a buyer's agent. I also want to work out how he ended up with 18 properties. Let's just see what his buying technique has been. How are you, mate? Nice to meet you. Very, very well, Peter. And uh, yeah, great to be with you. So tell us about, as a buyer's agent, obviously over the last two or three years, there's been plenty of business because there's been plenty of buying. What are you seeing right now? Um, right now, what I'm seeing is the markets in the capital cities, particularly Sydney, Melbourne, starting to slow down a little bit. Um, auction clearance rates coming down. Uh, a lot more vendors and agents willing to actually accept offers before auction, which is uh, unusual. Uh, certainly in a hot market, you don't really get that much. So we are getting um, yeah, more opportunities to, uh, you know, to put in those offers uh, yeah, pre-auction. Um, what I'm seeing in some of the regional markets, they're quite strong though. Uh, and particularly for investors, the 
the, the rental yields are still quite high uh, and there's still, uh, you know, sea change and things. People are still moving to some of those regional markets. Uh, so they're quite strong across the country at the moment. So there's several different uh, property markets still occurring. Yeah. So, yeah, this whole idea of working from home uh, and using Zoom or Microsoft Teams and things like that, has that really helped the regional property markets? Yeah, I think it has. I think there's been quite a lot of people that have actually made the move from from the cities. They've moved into these these regional markets. Uh, you know, people have been moving there for more space, get larger homes, get an office space there, where maybe in the city they can only afford to have uh, an apartment where you can buy a, a much larger home uh, with some acreage. Uh, you know, bring up their kids, uh, and I think that's uh, really been driving these regional markets. Uh, definitely, yeah, so I, th I think it's definitely had an impact and I've seen that across several different states as well because we, we buy across, uh, you know, all the Eastern Seaboard. So does that mean that there's potentially value in the apartment market because people are leaving or does the, the number of people coming into the market, either it be by uh, migration or younger people trying to escape their parents and, <laughs> and grow up into an, and get into an apartment, is that not necessarily showing up as apartments are becoming really good value at the moment? I actually think there is some value coming back into the apartment market now, but not so much one bedrooms. I think one bedrooms a little bit um, out now because they just don't have enough room. I think yeah. two bedders, uh, two bedders plus uh, an office space are the ones that are coming, uh, you know, coming into flavor. Yeah. Uh, and I think, for, you know, for young, young couples and you know, people just moving out of home, trying to get into the market, uh, there's definitely some opportunities there and some good buying at the moment. Mm. You were talking about um, you know, offers before auction. Uh, what's, what, what's actually going on there now? Are, are potential buyers saying, I'd rather wait to see the auction and get a good bargain at the auction rather than trying to you know, get in before an auction and, and get a good price? Yeah, so that sort of depends. Uh, it really depends on the property and on the agents. So um, with me, I uh, you know work with a lot of buyers, and you know sort of try to suss out the the vendors, the agents, you know why they're selling, uh, how much in interest they've had in the property, and everything like that. Uh, yeah, we've still got vendors out there who insist on going to you know to auction and everything. It really depends on if you can put in an offer and it's quite a reasonable offer. Quite often, when you put in an offer before auction, you need to put your best foot forward and it needs to be quite a strong offer. Mm. Otherwise, they won't consider it. What I'm seeing at the moment is I'm considering much more reasonable offers. So you know, if you get a lower offer accepted, then that's great. But if you don't really get the price you're looking for, then you'll hold off and go to auction. So I think what I'm kind of seeing is that buyers are willing to put in an offer. But if it's not for the price they want, then they might still, you know, go ahead and do the auction. Okay, we, we have a, a colleague who um, has a very nice property overlooking the harbour in Sydney. And, you know, an, an agent that won the business thought it would be a, an $11 million property. Uh, other agents did tip eight or nine, but of course she went with the agent tipping the most. But at this point in time, she's not getting an, an offer even in the nines. Is that because the the high-end property market is actually coming off the boil faster than the more accessible markets? 
Uh, it is. So the higher end markets tend to uh, come off a little bit quicker because there's limited buyers in that market. So if you look at the the lower uh, to medium sort of priced properties, there's much more um, people there in demand uh, there uh, mm. and, you know, first home buyers and stuff for particularly, you know, sub 1 million and sub 1.5, depending on, you know, what markets we're looking in. But if you're looking at properties at 5 million plus, 10, 10 mil plus, uh, there's much more limited buyers there. Uh, so, uh, and that'll be even more limited and wanting to get more of a bargain. So yeah, those are the markets that tend to come off. I think the other thing also is that uh, I could, I'm always wary of real estate agents that are, uh, you know, suggesting, you know, too high a price that you can sell a property for. I'm often, you know, be tempted to go with the one that might be offering that lower price because it might be more realistic anyway. Mm. Uh, a person in that sort of situation, would you advise them to go to auction or is it risky to go in auction and get no bids at all? Uh, with, with those sort of um, properties, uh, I'd probably want to uh, work with an, an agent that can actually find a good buyer okay. uh, and probably not go to auction because there's uh, going to be probably limited people come to auction on, on a property like that, particularly in the current market. So I'd be wanting a good agent who can, can find a realistic buyer. Uh, that's probably the position that I'd, I'd be in, in the current market. When you're in a really hot market, it's, it, you know, it's different. You're going to have a lot of buyers. So it really just depends on on the market to win, but where we are at the moment, uh, I'd be wanting to get a um, get an offer and get some um, you know qualified buyers. Okay, because you work with buyers, uh, you should be able to gauge what kind of reaction people are having to the to the increasing interest rates. Are they dropping out? Are some dropping out of the market altogether, or are they just downgrading what they're prepared to pay? Yeah, so uh, there's a little bit of both, and a lot of that has to do with the um, borrowing capacity. Because as interest rates go up, people uh, can actually borrow less money, uh, unfortunately. So that does affect what they can buy. Um, and then it depends on, you know, if you're looking uh, as a homeowner or an investor. So I'm finding that a lot of my, uh, you know, investor clients are just really looking for, you know, much more positive cash flow, which is uh, something that I um, focus on. Uh, after I did write a book called Positively Geared. So I do um, do focus on that positively cash flow uh, type property for investors. Mm. Um, with homeowners, uh, I find that people are starting to, uh, you know, look in that lower price um, brackets or just wait a little bit longer. A lot of them are sort of uh, looking to see what might happen in three to six months time, mm. see if the market's going to uh, drop more or stabilise. How far do you think prices will fall? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking probably around uh, 15 to 18% in the, the Sydney and the Melbourne markets. Yeah. Uh, I think we've, uh, we're probably going to see some um, big um, you know, price reductions also in Brisbane because it was a very overheated market last year. Uh, and I think people, there's a lot of FOMO, people pay too much. So uh, while there's still a bit of strength in that market, I think that's going to probably come back probably 10 to 12%. Uh, Adelaide was also very heated and the agents are telling me in Adelaide that it's, uh, yeah, it's really starting to slow down there uh, and they're not making a, uh, a lot of sales there at the moment. So I probably think maybe 10% back there at the moment. Okay. Uh, and I, I think the regional markets are still quite, quite strong at the moment. Okay. Uh, in, in one of your press releases, you, you make the point that you, you own 18 properties and a lot of people do warn young people uh, you know, who aspire to copy people like you that it can be dangerous. Um, how have you done it? Did you make mistakes in your early days? And what have you learnt from those mistakes? Well, I've certainly made plenty of mistakes. And I don't think anyone who's uh, you know been successful or something hasn't made mistakes. Uh, but 
the other thing I, I should also point out that it is trickier these days to you know keep building a portfolio with finance and what it was when I first started as well. Mm. Um, you can still do it, but maybe not to the same extent. But the what, what I was always focused on was the you know the, the cheaper price points. Mm. Uh, so not spending too much. Uh, always looking at under my borrowing capacity and looking at positively geared properties. So trying to get good cash flow there. Um, one of the mistakes I did make once was buying in a mining town because it had really high yields mm. where, you know, I bought a property for 260,000. It was renting for 800 a week. And then suddenly the mining um, boom sort of ended overnight and mm. that property just, you know, went back, uh, mm. you know, overnight and suddenly was renting for 180 a week. And I've, yeah. I've actually still got that property. <laughs> uh, so that, that was a major mistake. Good, good learning experience to share with people. So definitely made some mistakes there. Um, but the main thing uh, that uh, I think I can probably share with people is that it's really important to uh, to look at the capital growth you're going to get in the properties because that's that's what's going to create the wealth, not so much the rental yield. And one of the things that I've always done to grow my portfolio is to diversify amongst different lenders. And I've never been scared to use non-bank lenders. So not just the major four, but the non-bank lenders that ha have higher serviceability calculators. Uh, and, and and diversifying across you know different locations as well. Great, great stuff, Lloyd. Thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck going forward. Thanks so much, Peter. Lloyd Edge from Oz Property Professionals, and that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday. If you want to know more about what we do, or you're looking for more insights in the stocks to buy or sell, have a look at SwitzReport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.